Hello and welcome to this U.S. contradiction, higher interest rates compared with resilience, economic science, podcast and discussion sponsored by PSG Wealth. Now, the largest economy in the world, that is the U.S., is showing tremendous resilience despite the fastest interest rate cycle in four decades. In just over 12 months, the U.S. Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates from a low of 0.25% to a 40-year high of 5.5%. While, you know, 40 years ago, their unemployment was closer to 6%, where today it's closer to 70-year lows of uh, 3.5%. My name is Muriwa Gabaza, writer with the Business Day and Financial Mail, and I'll be your host for what is said to be a very fascinating conversation. We are joined by CIO of uh, PSG Wealth, that is Adrian Pask. He is the Chief Investment Officer, and he's going to be explaining why the U.S. economy is still so strong today despite borrowing costs being at a 40-year high. Adrian, it's always good to talk to you and I feel like a session like today could simply be titled, How Do They Continue to Do This? Could you please explain maybe what you mean when you say that uh, the U.S. economy is showing contradicting signs? Hi, Mediwa, and hello to the listeners as well. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I mean, if we look at some of the economic variables that are being reported, it looks like the economy is in pretty good shape. Economic growth is at 2.5%, which is slightly just ahead of its long-term average of around 2 And as you've mentioned before, unemployment rate to 3.5%, that's at 70-year low. So what interest rates it seems to be saying in, in the economic data variables, which seems rather odd. So it does seem a little bit odd, like you said. And I think, you know, economic theory would say that uh, a lot of things are meant to be going in, in, in the opposite direction, hence why we're having this discussion. So maybe you could give us a little bit of insight into what is supposed to happen in economies when interest rates are higher and what does the current data actually tell us and what is it saying about the U.S. economy? Yeah, so as I mentioned, if we start with what's actually happening in the economy, just on a basic level, GDP numbers look fine and unemployment numbers look fine, as I've mentioned. But why this is strange is if you increase interest rates in any economy, essentially what you're doing is you're increasing the cost of funding and you're trying very deliberately to damper demand. Because if you can damper demand, you can control inflation rate. Prices shouldn't go up because demand isn't pushing those prices up. But inherently, what you also experience, the other side of that is if you damper demand, then obviously businesses have less money coming in through consumers because consumers are spending less. Because the businesses are making less money, there's typically less room to employ more people. So employment numbers start to pick up. There's a decline in wages because unemployment levels are high. And the consumer spending, as I mentioned, is low. And then the very important next link is it starts to filter into corporate earnings, which means that stock markets, if they haven't anticipated this already, start to decline. And that's really where the rub comes in, because if you look at what the S&P 500 has done for the year to date, it's up roughly 20%. So the market seemed to be saying there isn't a, a worry around interest rates and the economy is saying there isn't a, a worry around interest rates. And I think that's something that we need to take note of and be very careful at this point in time. 
I wanted to maybe ask if you could indulge me in a bit of a follow-up, Adrian, to what you've said. Like you said, when you, in a lot of these situations, monetary policy dictates that if you push up your borrowing costs, as, as you've just explained, that's meant to dampen demand and all that. But what I was just going to ask, perhaps it's a little bit of a diversion, but how do you think that particular factor then interacts with the fact that, you know, coming out of uh, the pandemic, there was probably a lot of pent-up demand that went out into into the market. Yeah, I think it's a combination of two things, really, and it's a good point that you're making. I think that on the one side, you've got pent-up demand because through COVID, obviously people are in lockdown, they don't get to, to spend the money that, that they're actually getting in from, from fiscal support because obviously the governments are trying to keep the economy afloat. Some of it finds its way, like the basic things like a shelter and food and that kind of stuff. But consumer spending, not really on terms, in terms of luxuries or things like automobiles and holidays and those kind of things. So you've got this simultaneous pickup in savings and a reduction in, in demand, which leads to both pent up savings and pent up demand, which is then obviously the release then later. I think, but where this becomes really important discussion is what we've seen through that period is savings rates really blow up because you've got all this additional government support coming in in terms of vouchers or grants or whatever form they come in, but you're not really spending it. So you put it away and now the economy lifts and you can, you can spend that money. So it's really important to go look at what the accumulated savings are in the US economy and what we saw during COVID is that that savings pool ballooned out to roughly $2 trillion, which is a whole lot of additional backup power for when the economy opens or for when you experience uh, interest rate hikes, for example, like we are now, to buffer some of the noise. And I think that's what we've seen. But the problem is those excess savings don't last forever. Eventually, they do run out. And we can already see that $2 trillion in excess savings. As we stand here today, it's just below $300 billion. So 70% of it has already been utilized to buffer the consumer. So the key question is, what then happens if the interest rates are high and we run out of the savings buffer, and you can already see as we near the depletion of this credit is starting to pick up at the same time that interest rates are high. So consumers are already utilizing funds outside of their normal savings in the form of credit to keep the consum consumption engine going. And in the US, that's really, really important because if you look at the composition of US GDP, Consumer spending constitutes roughly 70% of GDP. So if the consumer is underpaying a strain, then that's going to have an impact on GDP numbers. But like I say, for, for the reasons I've mentioned, because this additional buffer is there, we haven't really seen it yet. And put next to that, we should remember interest rates don't filter through to the economy immediately. What typically happens is the policymakers push up interest rates, and now consumers are a bit more reluctant to spend some money and it starts to filter out of the economy. You take on less loans, et cetera. But this is all consumer behavior. It doesn't change overnight. It takes a time to filter through for people to adjust their spending habits, et cetera. So, and there's also the second round effects. So if you don't spend on through one thing, 
then obviously it, it translates into a change in need for something else, for example. So the full extent of interest rates, we haven't even seen yet. The, the full phase of the interest rate hike cycle takes about 12 to 18 months to filter through. So even the very first interest rate hikes that we've seen aren't really effective in the economy as we sit here. And that will only start to take place now. So we're going to most likely see a coincidence of both the excess savings pool being depleted as well as the full extent of interest rate hikes hitting the economy at the same time. And that's where we will see, oh, interest rates are actually working. And now we've got a problem because things are happening quite quickly and the interest rates hikes that we've seen over the last three months, for example, are only set to filter through into the economy in, in 12 to 15 months from now. So there is massive risk of what they call policy error, thinking that you are doing the right thing from an interest rate perspective, thinking that you've got inflation or interest rates under control where they are, with where they should be, only to learn later that the economy is now reacting differently to what you anticipated. And I think that's what we're going to see over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. It does uh, bode very interesting dynamics to be considering. A lot of balls in the air that one has to consider when uh, thinking about the dynamic around uh, demand, the impact of interest rates. And I guess that lends itself to why there's such a raging debate in a place like South Africa, you know, to say how far can monetary policy actually go in terms of trying to reel in a lot of the factors that are affecting the local economy. Yes, you can do something about demand, but what happens when that is counterbalanced by the pent-up demand? You know, inflation has proven to be a bit harder to tame, but we're starting to see some tapering off. So it is an interesting uh, set of dynamics to see. And obviously, a lot of different countries tend to take that lead from the U.S. So the U.S. is, uh, you know, sort of they take the lead on how a lot of countries and central banks particularly think around their moves and how they're moving the pieces on the chessboard. So it will be an interesting one to see how it does develop over time. But coming back to the U.S. discussion, Adrian, most people, you know, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, would look at a strong U.S. economy as a good thing. I think you and I have had discussions about some people, you know, saying that the U.S. economy is too strong. And, uh, you know, all those debates around the BRICS currency that we've had in the past. But for a lot of people, they look at a strong U.S. economy as being a good thing. So against that particular backdrop where, you know, you do have strong consensus to say that a U.S. economy is a good thing. Why should investors actually be cautious in how they move in the market? Yeah, I think there's actually a lot to be, be learned from from history, like most things. If you go back far enough in history, you find something that looks quite quite interesting for the existing environment, and, and you can learn from that. And I think it's actually astonishing how the current environment is quite similar to what we saw in the late 1990s and early 2000s. We, we saw quite, quite peculiarly very similar things. We saw interest rate hikes in the late 1990s. We saw the dot-com bubble develop and grow. And and we all know what happened subsequent to that. Um, even in the face of interest rate cuts, the dot-com bubble burst and the, the rest is history. But if we go back to that environment, essentially 
the the economy was doing what it's supposed to do. Markets were still flying in spite of high interest rates, only to learn later that there's trouble on the cards and then markets sold off. And to give you a practical example of the consequences of that, and it speaks a little bit into some of the AI hype that we've seen more recently that's really been the key driver behind the S&P 500's gains this year. So as I mentioned, they're up roughly 20%. And why is that with high interest rates? And essentially, if we look back, early 90s, all the rage was Microsoft. We, I mean, it's hard to think it's only, you know, a couple of decades ago, but at that point in time, internet and software and all this stuff was still fairly new. And everybody said it would change the world. And, and that was true. It did. We, we're talking via internet channels now. We work on software daily. Somewhere someone, um, you know, touches Microsoft product every day. But the problem is, the price that you paid. So, I mean, in the in the late 1990 uh, year 1999, the stock price of Microsoft peaked at at 58 dollars, and obviously the dot com bubble burst. It fell down to 22 dollars a stock. And that's still you can live with because markets go through pullbacks and recessions take place, and you should recover. But if you pay way too much for something, then you can wait a longer time to recover. And I think that's where we are now. We need to be careful of that dynamic, not overpaying, because in that specific case, like I said, it was the early 2000s when Microsoft's price went to $22 a share. It only reached that level again in 2016. So you had to wait more than a decade to just get to the same point where you were, in spite of investing in a company with fantastic prospects, etc., and the recession came and gone, etc. So I think the the real cautionary year for investors is don't get pulled into the over optimism in the market at mo- at the moment. Be skeptical of the strength in the in the U.S. economy at the moment. Interest rates are yet still to show their full strength in the market, and optimism is something that can recede very very quickly and turn into skepticism etc and it can be quite painful so our, our advice at the moment is it's not to say the us is completely uninvestable but rather focus on the things that you're not over overpaying on and where you do pay a little bit more in anticipation of future growth you've got to have quite a lot of surety that you're going to see that growth come through. So like I say, I think quite a few nice lessons out of that period in the early 2000s that we can extrapolate into the current environment. It's always funny to me how you see these lessons from the past and we talk about these things, but they're always excused away. You know, some investors just excuse it away to support the existing narrative, whatever's occupying their minds at the moment. And I think it's, it's a waste of, of a lesson there. So we're trying to pay, pay close attention to some of what history has, has taught us and, and position portfolios accordingly. Uh, certainly a valuable lesson because history is always a good lens through which to look at things, you know, because a lot of things tend to repeat themselves, maybe not in the exact same sequence or circumstances, but a lot of lessons to be learned from history. And against that history, then, Adrian, it does beg the question to say, why do you think market consensus is viewing you know this differently is it a little bit of uh, perhaps the hubris that you are alluding to now yes exactly i think in part investors are saying 
the economy is holding up quite well. We, we're looking at a soft landing. Therefore, everything is going to be okay, which I put a, a question mark over. And I think next to it, we've seen this similar to Microsoft in the early 2000s narrative with AI, which has been the driver on, on the markets. Again, saying not only is the economy surviving, but we've got these fantastic businesses that's going to change the world. And it's a very lethal combination that's sort of playing itself out into the S&P at the moment. All right. Now, as we're coming to the end of uh, today's discussion, Adrian, we've looked at things from uh, the historical lens. We've also just looked at, you know, what's meant to happen in an economy when interest rates are higher and perhaps some of the reasons why the U.S. has survived what is uh, record high, uh, record high and 40 year high, you know, rates at the moment. What is the lesson, you know, for investors in this contradiction? There's always, you know, a lot of tension in the economy. I think that's been literally the theme of today's discussion to say you expect things to go in one way, but you have, you know, some factors that are pushing you in one direction, other factors pushing you in, in another direction. But what can investors learn from these uh, contradictions that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, you know, it's strange how often it comes down to the same lesson. It's just be very cautious of over optimism. I think that's, that's the lesson in a sentence. And I think that's where we are at the moment. And we've seen this repeatedly in markets before. When, when the market gets excessively optimistic, it typically translates into poorer investor outcomes. So in, in a nutshell, I would say just be very, very skeptical. The optimism can be dangerous, and and the, if you're looking for a way to to manage that risk, it's not by not investing. It's just be very careful of what you pay. Be sure that you you can get the value that you that you anticipate, and don't be don't be swayed by the, the optimism in, that we currently see in in the marketplace at the moment. You've got to look at it very objectively, very very soberly, and say what's the likelihood of of these very optimistic forecasts really happening. And if you don't feel comfortable, rather shy away. And on the other end, there's things that are always pricing in very negative situations. And those things have a better chance of surprising to the upside. And there are some of those businesses also on the S&P 500. So therein lies the trick is to avoiding the things that are pricing in over optimism and, and pricing in too much negative news and tilt the portfolio accordingly. So that's been it. Really great discussion. I think the big lesson coming out from uh, Adrian is, you know, be very cautious or careful of um, over-optimism given uh, where the U.S. economy is. The signs might be pointing up, but, you know, we cannot uh, deny what has happened in the past. And I like the fact that uh, he gave us quite a good example and history lesson of what happened previously with a company and a stock like Microsoft and how uh, the market thought things were going to remain or go in a certain way, but ended up going in another. And then also just the fact that the past can also teach us a lot of lessons. And it's always good to have those lessons in the back of your mind, because I think he said it as well to say, it's actually quite funny how often some of these things repeat themselves and you see the same lesson, same themes coming through. So that is the big one. So that's 
been it. It has been a really great, uh, you know, discussion around uh, the U.S. contradiction, talking around high interest rates compared with resilient economic signs. And that was a discussion that was sponsored by PSG Wealth. We were talking to PSG's chief investment officer, that is Adrian Pask. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us for today. Yeah, thanks again. Appreciate it. It was fun. So I've been your host, Muriwa Gavaza, writer and economist with the, the Business Day and Financial Mail. Remember that you can subscribe for free episodes on iono.fm, Spotify, player.fm, Pocket Cast, or wherever you choose to get your podcasts.